0: I want to begin um, by trying to address a challenge that Nathaniel posed to me, which was he wanted me to say something about these two books um, and, uh, and how they uh, relate to each other. And the first book um, I wrote a long time ago now. It came out in 2010. Uh, and it's this book that uh, he uh, alluded to called The Hebrew Republic. And then the more recent book, um, uh, which came out right before the plague, um, uh, which is called The Theology of Liberalism. And uh, I thought it was actually a good question um, to think about uh, how they how they relate to each other. they um, They're both about secularization uh or claims about secularization uh, in some form or another but um, as uh, as people who study the subject know uh very well um, there is an extraordinary ambiguity uh, in the way that that term is used uh in the academy, uh particularly in so far as I would say the two, most, the, mo- the two most common things that people mean when they talk about secularization are not just different from each other, but almost uh, opposites or inverses. Um, that is, the more familiar one is uh, secularization where the thing uh, that is being secularized usually is something like society uh, or something like that. And secularization in that context is a subtraction story right it's that there used to be a lot of religious stuff going on uh and uh, religious arguments and um uh and uh, sort of ecclesiastical institutions and ecclesiastical jurisdiction and so on secular secularization is the story whereby all, all of that disappears uh and sort of yields place uh to uh, an entirely secular um sort of uh the, the social apparatus in the west uh and uh and in essence it's that first secularization story that I was more interested in, um, in the first book by way of saying that to the extent, uh, that quite a lot of historians of early modern political thought had treated the 17th century in particular as a site of secularization in that sense, that is uh, a period of time or indeed the period of time, uh, when, uh, under the uh, sort of combined impact of the wars of religion. Uh, philosophical skepticism uh, and uh, and several other sort of very broad um, sort of socio cultural phenomena uh, religious sources uh, forms of authority and argument recede uh, and uh, and political science becomes secular. Uh, this is the moment at which um, uh, political philosophers try to do without uh, religious arguments and are no longer fundamentally interested uh, in. Uh, in the question of uh, ecclesiology, theology, all of these things. And it seemed to me uh, that that story, uh, the traditional way of telling it, um, put things almost exactly backwards. Uh, That's to say, if you looked at, um, say, the political thought of the humanists uh, in the earlier period, in the 15th, 16th centuries, uh, even beginning in the 14th, what you see was that their approach to political theory was remarkably secular in this sense. That is, it made very little recourse uh, to religious arguments, texts, uh, sources, and so on. Uh, why? Well, because it was classical. I mean, this is the, you know, these people were uh, reviving Cicero and Ciceronianism or Aristotle and Aristotelianism or whatever it was, and their sources and preoccupations were not Um, fundamentally Christian. And when you read their text, they're very rarely talking about religion. Um, They're almost never talking about the Bible. Uh, And uh, and they have a quite freestanding classical uh, or classicizing approach to political science. The 17th century, it seemed to me, went exactly the other way. Uh, It was in the full sort of fervor of the Reformation uh, that for complicated reasons European political theorists uh, uh, were suddenly animated in a way that they hadn't been for a very long time uh, by um, uh, uh, religious questions, theological questions, and particularly the Bible, uh, and the full panoply of Hebrew sources that they were rediscovering by way of uh, their project of trying to understand and interpret the Bible. And so in essence, in the first book, what I was trying to answer was the question, how did that encounter, broadly speaking, this encounter between Christian, largely Protestant, um, uh, leaders and thinkers and their Hebrew sources, how did that encounter change the way that people thought about politics? And I was trying to tell that story by way of saying that this traditional subtraction story about the uh, 17th century was uh, was was misguided and misleading, uh, that really actually it's a sort of moment of, uh, of, of sort of re-theologizing, if you want, uh, and certainly rebiblicizing biblicizing uh, of uh, of the tradition. So that's the one kind of secularization. But of course, as many of you will know, uh, the other thing that people most often mean when they talk about secularization is almost the reverse, right? Not the claim that um, society, our ideas, our ways of thinking used to be religious, and then they stopped being uh, religious or, or based in, or grounded in and. Uh, theology, religious claims, and so on, but that in some way uh, they continue to be even though we don't recognize it, right? So if the first is a subtraction story, the second is, let's call, an occlusion story, right? Where uh, the religious and theological apparatus and set of assumptions uh, and arguments that ground our politics, uh, and other features of the modern world let's say have gone subterranean they're they're now uh, incognito in disguise and we no longer recognize them and that fact uh then has all kinds of consequences uh for how effectively we're able to think our way through modernity and its problems because we we don't recognize as it were the deep tissue uh of uh of uh, the world in which we live uh that is still um uh although it seems uh, to be secular, is still fundamentally um, structured around uh, these theological assumptions, claims, arguments, and so on. So this is the tradition that probably is most associated with Nietzsche, Right, the idea uh, that God is dead, but his shadow lingers, right? That we're, we're still, uh, we still live within it, even though we don't know it. Uh, and, uh, and the task then of genealogy is to show us, uh, to do the, is to sort of dig up uh, this, um, this invisible uh, sort of substrate of our thought, right? Uh, and that sort of broadly Nietzschean approach has had many uh, different adherents, and uh, there are different rifts on it. Uh, probably the most famous in the 20th century is Karl Schmitz, uh, and the idea uh, that he defends And, of course, many people uh, defend uh, uh, who are his uh, his readers and acolytes, which is to say that modern political concepts um, are, as he put it, secularized theological concepts. That's to say um, it's a story whereby arguments or or concepts that begin as distinctly theological um, are sort of transformed uh, in this subtle way, into secular concepts. And his major examples will be things like the idea of sovereignty. Right? So you take an idea, an attribute of, uh, of God, uh, that is his sovereignty, his omnipotence, uh, and you then uh, apply this concept or uh, assign it to the civil sovereign. Right? So it begins as, uh, as, uh, as a way of thinking about the divine, and then it ends as a way of thinking about secular power. But really, what I wanted to do in uh, this second book, um, in The Theology of Liberalism, was, while remaining broadly within this Nietzschean uh, tradition, to say something very different from uh, what a Schmidian would say. Because the Schmidian, as you can hear, says, I take these sort of um, uh, these distinctively religious ideas, and then uh, they're somehow secularized. And we're still, uh, in that way of thinking, dealing with a very clear distinction between the two, right? There are arguments that are just religious, and then there are arguments that are just secular, and secularization is about taking one and somehow uh, sort of transforming it into the other. And it seemed to me uh, that uh, one could say something very different about the relationship, uh, between, uh, what seemed to be religious and what seemed to be secular ideas, uh, in particular, uh, by way of explaining the emergence, uh, of this thing we call liberalism, uh, and then explaining, uh, what, uh, in my view is something that peculiar, something very peculiar that happens to liberalism, um, uh, on its way through the 20th century. And so, uh, I'm just going to, uh, say a little bit about the shape of the argument, uh, and, uh, and then, uh, hope to, to sort of open it up and we can talk about the bits of it that you find most stimulating and interesting. So in essence, um, I begin with a disclaimer and that is, um, liberalism, uh, any, you know, uh, the historians in the room, uh, I don't know who you are, but you're wincing as you even hear the term because, um, first of all, when we use it to apply to anything or any phenomenon before the 19th century, the early 19th century, we we're committing anachronism. right? This is a term, uh, that evolved, uh, in post-revolutionary France, uh, to, uh, to refer to a, per- a particular, uh, sort of political persuasion, uh, that emerges, uh, in that period. Uh, and so when we apply it to say, um, uh, the 17th century, and we look for a liberalism uh, in this period, um, we're doing something of which historians are rightly suspicious. On the other hand, um, it is absolutely unmistakably the case that this cluster of commitments that come to be constitutive of liberalism in the early 19th century do have early modern roots. Uh, Ideas like religious toleration, uh, the rule of law, uh, freedom of speech, and expression, uh, something like an idea of the uh, of the um, uh, the value of privacy and so on. And we're rightly curious about where these ideas come from, and that leads us back to the early modern period to the people who didn't think of themselves as liberals uh, but who were defending and developing uh, these arguments. And in essence, uh, what I try to show first, is that these people, uh, to a person, uh, were fundamentally motivated uh, in their politics by a theological project uh, in the first instance. And in particular, uh, the, uh, the sort of character of that enterprise is uh, what we can broadly call Pelagianism. Uh, and this requires taking a step back. Uh, to uh, the very beginnings of the Christian church uh, and one of its fundamental controversies, uh, which then continues to ramify. And so I argue explains quite a lot of the structure of this thing that emerges as liberalism. So what's the dispute? Many of you will know about it. Uh, and uh, and uh, as I uh, bodlerize it to squeeze it into the next four minutes, uh, please have mercy on me. Um, uh, but for those of you who might not know about it, um, this is fundamentally a question that begins from within a particular um, tradition uh, of theology that we might call rationalism. Uh, that is, um, going back to the, this foundational moment in the Western tradition, uh, in Plato's early dialogue, the *Euthyphro*, a question arises. It's a question that we would now, in kind of tedious philosophy-speak, Uh, Refer to as the question of meta-ethics, right, Uh, as opposed to ethics. So ethics is the question, what should we do? What what are the relevant moral principles? Meta-ethics is asked the question, not what should we do or what are the relevant moral principles, but what kinds of things are these principles? Where do they come from? What grounds them? And uh, this debate uh, that Plato um, launches, really, in the Euthyphro is about that. And, uh, many of you will know the famous moment in the text. Uh, this is Socrates waiting for his trial. He's, uh, he meets his young friend Euthyphro, uh, who's there on other business. Uh, he's actually prosecuted his father and uh, as one does, and, um, and, uh, they get into a discussion about the pious, uh, sometimes translated as the, as holiness or whatever the pious. And the question becomes, well, what is holiness? What is the pious? Um, and, um, uh, at some point, Socrates asked the question, well, let me ask you, is it that um, something is pious because the gods love it, or do the gods love it because it's pious or holy? And it quickly becomes clear in the sort of course of the dialogue that you can substitute for the word pious uh, any other moral value, just, dutiful, good, whatever. Is something just because God says so, or the gods, or whomever? So is it the result of an act of will? Is it someone deciding that this is the case? Or are these things just intrinsically good, beautiful, just, and so on? Uh, and the gods, of course, tell us to do these things, but they tell us to do these things uh, not because it's a mere whim, but because they are perfect and unerringly good. Right? That's, the, that's the question. And of course, many of you will know that the answer that Plato gives is uh, rationalist one, that is to say um, uh, that moral values are not the product of anybody's will, not even God's, right? Um, they are, for Plato, like mathematical truths. Uh, they're just so. Uh, they, they, they have a kind of objective, intrinsic nature. Uh, and God, of course, being perfect, will always conform his behavior uh, to these principles. Uh, but, his, but these principles are not a product of his will. Uh, so let's call that view rationalism. Uh, That is the dominant uh, tradition in all of the major strands of uh, Jewish, Christian and indeed Muslim uh, theology uh, from that from, uh, you know, uh, from that moment forward. But there is, of course, an alternative. Um, You could go the other way uh, and you could say, no, no, no. I think uh, that um, that justice and so on are what they are because God says so. That it's God's will that determines the question. Why would you say that? Well, if you were a a sort of theologian of a particular kind, you might worry that the rationalist answer um, constrains God's freedom. Right. Um, If God certainly and unerringly always does what these principles require, then is he really free? Right. Um, if we know with certainty what he's going to do, uh, how is that consistent with the idea of his freedom? And if these things that somehow govern his behavior are antecedent to him uh, and don't owe their nature to any grounding in him, have we not just compromised his omnipotence? So you might, if you wanted to uh, solve those problems, go the other route, which we'll call voluntarism from the Latin term uh, voluntas, meaning the will, right, that these principles are grounded in somebody's will, namely God's. Well, what's the problem with that view? Uh, for the overwhelming majority of theologians, that view uh, was simply a non-starter because it seemed to turn God into a tyrant, right? That is to say, uh, you, you now have God Um, as an arbitrary monarch simply um, laying down laws uh, and it seemed as if we could give a good prudential reason why you should do what god tells you uh, if he's the voluntarist god namely he could drop a house on you or something i mean you know you have good reasons to keep him happy but they're not moral reasons right you couldn't offer as a reason for doing what god tells you uh well that's because what god tells you is good right because then you've argued in a circle so uh so for the overwhelming majority, uh, the rationalist answer is the is the one that they take. However, once you've said that uh, the principles of justice are, and other moral values, but we're going to talk about justice mostly for now. Um, once you've said that justice is just what it is, um, whether God says so or not. Um, You've already gone into um, a very uh, particular uh, sort of frame of discourse, and you've introduced an obvious problem, and that is, you've now said that it looks as if God should play by the same rules we understand and play by ourselves. We can ask the question: Is my behavior just? We can also ask the behavior: Is God's? Uh, the question: Is God's behavior just? Now, for a voluntarist, that's no—he that, 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 gets out of that problem, he or she, uh, because. Um, you've now said justice is just whatever God says it is. So the question, but is God's behavior consistent with justice becomes a nonsense question, right? Um, it's just justice, just is whatever uh, God decides. But if you don't take that view, if you take the rationalist view, uh, it looks like God has to be just uh, by the standards that we can all understand, at least to some extent, although, of course, to what extent will become a subject of major dispute, And yet we look around, and there seems to be a lot of badness in the world. Uh, There seems to be badness of lots of different kinds. There is the badness of human beings doing horrible things to each other. right? Uh, But there's also um, uh, badness that has nothing to do with human actions, things like earthquakes, cancer, uh, and so on. Uh, And uh, and if you're uh, a Christian in particular— um, you think there's then an ultimate form of badness, which is that the vast majority of the human race is damned. Right? Uh, how is all of that consistent with the hypothesis that a perfectly just all-powerful being elected to create this world? So that question um, becomes the theodicy problem. right? Uh, although the term is coined by Leibniz in 1710, um, uh, meaning in Greek, just uh, Greek neologism, meaning the justice of God. Um, and, uh, but by the time Leibniz uh, coins the term, the debate had already been going for 2,000 years. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is fundamentally uh, the central debate. How do we make sense of the idea? How could we vindicate the hypothesis that a perfectly just omnipotent and benevolent God elected to create this world with all the suffering that's in it? And the cluster of, uh, of people I'm interested in uh, begin with an apparently common sense thought. If you were interested, let's say, in vindicating uh, the, the, uh, the hypothesis in question, you might start from the uh, premise of freedom, right? That God wants to create a world in which freedom is possible, namely the, the capability for morality. And that seems to do two things for you. First of all, it seems to explain why God would allow a world in which human beings do terrible things to each other. Because a world in which there is freedom is a world in which people can choose to do the wrong thing, can do badly. But you wouldn't choose to create a world of unfreedom, right, just to uh, get rid of the. Uh, the accompanying evils that human beings inflict on one another, so that 's the basic thought so we explain moral evil that is the evil that human beings do to each other uh as simply uh, uh, identical uh with uh the gift of freedom, the ability to choose uh and uh, you wouldn't uh you wouldn't want to sacrifice this and uh this also explains. Uh, why God is fundamentally just in punishing sin, right? Uh, This gets to the damnation problem also. I mean, if people are free to sin or not, as they choose, and they then sin, God is just in punishing. And so you seem to have the beginnings of an answer. You might go a step further, and you might say not just that we can vindicate God's justice in punishment, that is to say, if we're free, then it would be consistent and reasonable for a just God to punish us for our sins. But again, you can go the next step and say that we can vindicate God's distributive justice. That is the, way, the fact that God has chosen to create this particular world with all its distributions of goods and bads on the hypothesis, which, of course, we could never prove, but we can also not disprove, which is the crucial point, uh, namely that perhaps um, if you... Uh, If you want a world in which there are going to be creatures like us who are capable of morality, which is the highest good, the thing that's transcendently valuable, you simply must have earthquakes and cancer and things like that. Uh, It's just part of the recipe, right? If you want creatures like us, uh, there are... Are only uh, th- there's a finite number of ways in which you can bring it about uh, that there are creatures like us, right? So God is omnipotent. Uh, that's to say, he could choose to create any kind of world he wants, but he's not omnipotent in the sense that he can choose any number of ways to create any particular kind of world, right? He's constrained uh, by. Uh, by logical necessity, uh, in the same way that uh, that we are, so you've vindicated God's distributive, ju- God's punitive justice and His distributive or creative justice by by uh, by flagging this issue of freedom, and that is essentially the view taken by this uh, still somewhat mysterious figure uh, in the late fourth, early fifth century, known as Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius was uh, a British. Sort of lay monk; uh, that is, he was um, he was not actually in orders. Uh, and uh, he uh, goes to Rome, uh, and he becomes an extremely influential teacher, uh, and uh, makes very important uh, sort of acolytes amongst the Roman aristocracy. And uh, word of his general teaching uh, reaches Augustine, uh, and Augustine is very unhappy. Uh, about all of this. Why? Well, what Pelagius was saying looks from 30,000 feet like a very good way to deal with the theodicy problem. But uh, Augustine takes the view uh, that um, it was sort of out of the frying pan into the fire, because yeah, maybe that shores you up in the theodicy space, as we would now say, but it makes a huge problem for you uh, in the realm of Christian doctrine. That's to say, if it's really true that we're all perfectly capable of sinning or not as we choose, uh, becoming virtuous, perfecting our characters, uh, being pleasing to God and therefore meriting his election and reward, why is it that Christ had to come and be crucified? And so Augustine um, writes this series of famous um, uh, polemical attacks on Pelagius uh, in which he asserts something like his mature doctrine of original sin. Uh, as the alternative, right? No, we have to claim that uh, that we are not free, that we're rather, rather in bondage to sin, incapable of meriting uh, God's election without the intercession of grace. And in the late Augustine, uh, it's a fully predestinarian picture, right? That's to say uh, that God, uh, for ordains, for reasons that are beyond us, which particular people are going to be saved, uh, he sends them his grace. This grace is irresistible, permanent, uh, and uh, and will uh, we'll see them through to their election, and everyone else uh, is damned. And this is how to make sense of the necessity for the atonement, right? the, the, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, so what's the problem there from the point of view of Augustine's critics in the early modern period that I'm interested in? These are people like Milton, uh, Locke. Uh, Leibniz to some degree certainly Kant, uh, Rousseau, Uh, they all think uh, once again uh, that this view turns God into a tyrant, right? Because to say God is going to punish you for sinning if you cannot but sin uh, looks like uh, the action of a tyrant. So if God is just, it must be that Augustine is wrong. Uh, And if Augustine is wrong, it follows that we're free It follows that our freedom, our capacity for morality is the fundamentally most important fact about us, and it's the thing that the political realm should be dedicated to protecting. And so uh, this set of Pelagian commitments leads all of these um, sort of early modern figures, and I I go to some lengths to try to show this in the case of each one of them, uh, to not simply Pelagian theological commitments, but all of the political commitments that are downstream, the idea of a rational religion, that is to say, uh, if God is just and he's going to punish us when we sin, then we must know what sinning is and how to avoid it. That is, he must have sent us, uh, he must have given us access to the instructions. Uh, Otherwise, he would be just as tyrannical, right? To hold us accountable to a law that's inaccessible to us would be tyrannical. So it must be that in some sense, all of the moral law is fully intelligible to us or we're only going to be held accountable for that bit of it, which is otherwise, uh, again, uh, God turns out to be tyrannical and unjust. And what follows from this is a whole set of political commitments, uh, including uh, the, the, the this transcendent importance of choice right, and the idea that political institutions should be built to protect this space in which, as it were, each sort of heroic questing human being uh, goes out into the world to conquer vice and sin, uh, to use, uh, to use the freedom of the will, uh, to do what is pleasing to God, uh, and to merit election. So in essence, what I do is I try to say that's what liberalism begins as. And every major figure that we look back to as one of the progenitors of this kind of liberalism, uh, is a Pelagian, uh, Stride pledging, becoming increasingly strident as the 17th century turns into the 18th. By the time you get to Kant, where it's uh, as it were the whole hog, right? Um, so uh, then a funny thing happens, um, and what I one of the things I'm very interested in in the book is uh, is talking about the extraordinary um, uh, sort of rupture in this tradition uh, that is produced uh, by the most important anglophone political philosopher of the 20th century namely John Rawls. Uh, Because one of the things uh, that we now understand about Rawls is that he began his life studying theology, not politics, and in fact, uh, planning to become an Episcopal priest uh, when he was at Princeton in the 1940s. And in his undergraduate thesis, what he is interested in is this sort of set of arguments in neo-Orthodox Christian theology. The thesis was discovered uh, in the stacks uh, at Princeton by my friend and colleague Eric Gregory, uh, who, who, uh, who teaches there and published uh, in uh, 2010, I guess. Uh, and what we read there is really quite extraordinary uh, because the young Rolls is a strident Augustinian and a strident anti-Pelagian. His whole position, as he says, is that uh, Pelagianism would render the cross of Christ to no effect. Right Now, he's all. So not a predestinarian. Uh, so he has problems with the late Augustine. He's in fact a kind of universalist about election. But the point is, we're incapable of merit. That becomes the key argument. We're incapable of being meritorious, of earning God's favor, uh, a way of approaching the divine human encounter, which drawing on Marx uh, in, on the Jewish question, he refers to as on the bargain basis for Election—that That is the idea that you're trading God your good deeds for, uh, for his election, um, which Marx uh, and Rawls both associate with Judaism, very interestingly. Uh, and instead, uh, to argue that human beings, uh, on pain of making nonsense in a very Augustinian way, and on pain of making nonsense of the entire Christian mystery, we have to understand that we are without merit and that we are incapable of being deserving, that all the good things we do uh, come, uh, as it were, from outside. And he accepts the full doctrine of original sin with this asymmetry that's so distinctive about the doctrine of original sin. That is the, the account of agency that the, uh, that the idea of original sin um, presupposes is quite bifurcated, right? Because the idea is when we sin, that's really us, Right? Uh, that's not coming from outside, right? We're sinning because our nature is to sin. Uh, and our sin is not caused. Um, as Augustine says, it's the spirit depraving itself. It's the, in this mysterious way, um, the spirit works on itself to de- to uh, deprave itself, to corrupt itself. It's uncaused. And our sins should, of course, be attributed to us because we're sinners. What needs to be explained is why we would ever not sin. right. Uh, and the answer to that question is grace, right? So when we do good things, when we engage in a meritorious action, we claim no credit because that's just grace working through us. Uh, when we do bad things, we're justly to be punished. And one of the things I wanted to point out uh, in this rather Nietzschean vein uh, is that when you, you know, that that Rawls, um, of course, doesn't become a theologian. Uh, he goes off to the war. Uh, And although he massively um, exaggerates this rupture, uh, you know, later in life, he was actually teaching Christian ethics from a very internalist perspective at Cornell in the 1950s. But anyway, certainly by the 60s, he is no longer a Christian of any kind. uh, And he's doing secular analytic political philosophy. And he's writing his masterpiece, Theory of Justice, which comes out in 1971. And what do you find in the Theory of Justice? Exactly the same arguments. Uh, from the senior thesis made in exactly the same language, right? Uh, But here, uh, we're not talking about um, an explicitly theological subject anymore. We're talking about an answer to a question about distributive justice in the human realm. That's to say, Rawls asks the question, well, suppose society is a joint effort of social cooperation. How should the pie be divided? Well, suppose someone says, that look, there are, we all contribute different amounts to the social product and we should, uh, be rewarded as it were, differentially, according to what it is that we've contributed. Those who contribute more should get more and so on. Seems commonsensical. Rawls says no. Why? Well, because all of the facts about us that cause us to be better or worse at production, uh, are, as he says, arbitrary from a moral point of view, meaning, uh, uh, undeserved, uh, and, uh, and beyond our powers, just the cards that were dealt, right? Uh, and therefore we can claim no credit. It's one of the fundamental commitments of Rawls's, uh, theory of justice, which then says, uh, once you've eliminated that view, uh, that understanding of, uh, of how uh, the social product should be distributed. You will instead gravitate toward the one that favors, which is the famous difference principle. Some of you who've done Rawlsiana might have heard of. Uh, and the difference principle says that, uh, in essence, the social product should be divided equally unless un- there is some unequal distribution that would make the least well-off social group even better off than that group would be. So you basically are maximizing the position of the least well-off. That's how you engage in distribution, right? Uh, and this is, this is the Rawlsian view, and it's based entirely uh, on this set of arguments about the impossibility of dessert, which is entirely continuous. The more surprising fact is what's also present, although it has no earthly reason to be present in the mature sort of secular Rawls, is the asymmetry the old asymmetry. So Rawls, at this point, no longer accepts anything like the doctrine of original sin. But reader after reader, beginning in the 70s, has been mystified to discover that Rawls does not extend this argument about moral arbitrariness to the question of punitive justice, right? That is, when you commit a crime, Rawls doesn't say, ah, but you don't deserve to be punished because all of the facts about you that caused you to be the sort of person to commit this crime are arbitrary from a moral point of view. He says, no, you should be punished because you've committed a naturally bad act. Uh, And that's as it were really you. So exactly the same asymmetry. And there've been all kinds of extremely um, uh, intricate um, and imaginative attempts uh, to harmonize these two arguments. Um, I submit you can't, Um, that, um, there's an incoherence right at the center of the theory, uh, that makes all kinds of trouble for its overall architecture and is to be explained by the fact, not that Rawls remained a Christian, he wasn't, uh, but that he continued to think about these issues of agency like an Augustinian applying them now in a new context in which he can no longer avail himself of the crucial premises of the Augustinian argument uh, that could make the thing coherent. So that's an example of the kind of thing I'm interested in uh, in the book. But I think, um, Nathaniel, if I, I, I would just stop there, thank you all for, uh, for listening thus far and, and open it up to questions. Wonderful. Thank you so